Second Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 16 through 21. It says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts." Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You know, I'm glad that our church calendar has a designated Sunday for the Transfiguration. I've come to realize that the transfiguration event of Jesus does not seem to get enough press, not as much as it should. As we read Matthew's account and Peter's recollection of the transfiguration of Jesus, we need to look at the context in which this blessed event takes place. We, if we were to go back to chapter 16, right before the, chapter 70 that we read, we see that Peter has recently gone through the high of, being, of Jesus calling him the rock for his testimony that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the rock that Jesus will build his church upon. And then he's gone to the low of Jesus actually calling him Satan because he tells Jesus that he doesn't really have to suffer and die. And we also see where Jesus also makes the declaration in the verse immediately preceding the passage we're looking at today, describing the transfiguration, in which Jesus says, some standing there would not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. We're told six days after that that Jesus takes Peter, James, and John and leads them up a mountain by themselves. Why did Jesus take the disciples up this mountain, those three, and why, or what mountain? And some other questions come to mind, like, why did Jesus' face shine like the sun and his clothes be gleaming white? Why were Moses and Elijah there having this conversation with Jesus? Why, what did it mean that he was transfigured? And what were they talking about? Why did Peter say, hey, this is great, let's build three lean-tos? Why did God the Father speak to the disciples out of a cloud? Why did Jesus tell his disciples not to say a word about what had happened until his resurrection from the dead? And what difference does this event make to us today? What difference does it make to you and me? We need to understand what this event would have meant to Jesus' first disciples. They were, after all, first century Jews. And then we also need to see what significance it is to us as Christ followers today. We're told a great deal in this passage. There's a lot to unpack, and I'm going to try to unpack it in a very short period of time. But throughout my life, I have always enjoyed vacationing in the mountains. But having lived, pastored, and superintended a mission work in eastern Kentucky, I found out that living in the mountains can be awful inconvenient sometimes. For example, if I'm here and I want to get here, I can't just go here. I've got to go here, or here, 
And my mother was always afraid that her grandchildren were going to grow up with one leg shorter than the other because our yards were all like this. I'm going to attempt to lead us up the mountain this morning and, and rather than just merely traverse its base. So hang on, hang with me, okay? I'm reminded of the story of a guide who was leading a group of, of people on a hike through the mountains. And he pointed to a particular majestic mountain peak in the distance, and he said, that is a favorite among our mountain climbers. Most days we have a few teams that are doing a climb. He said the ascent, depending on your skill level, can take between two and five hours. One of the members of the group said, well, how long does the, the descent take? And the guide said, well, again, depending on your skill level, it could take four hours or it could take just 30 seconds. We're not told which mountain they ascended. The Gospels are silent on this, and there are several possibilities. There are two pretty good ones but, um, that have been suggested by most scholars. The first is Mount Tabor, which is the traditional site. Origen, one of my favorite theologians in history, and, and other church, early church fathers, um, they thought that Mount Tabor was, was the site of the Transfiguration. Uh, it's not a very high mountain at 1,886 feet, but it stands by itself in the Jezreel Valley about 11 miles west of the Sea of Galilee. The problem with that site is that during Jesus' time here on earth, the Romans had a military encampment on that mountain. So that questions the, brings into question the likelihood of that. Then there's Mount Hermon, which is 9,232 feet, a much higher mountain, and near the district of Caesarea Philippi, which is the place where the events that we were previously described in the Gospels took place. So it's a pretty good possibility. But none of the three Gospel writers provide us with this detail of which specific mountain it was. But its location is not all that important. The point is they went up a mountain. We're told in um, Luke's Gospel in 928 that Jesus went up the mountain to pray. One day a preacher lost his favorite Bible when he'd gone into the mountains to pray and have spiritual reflection. During this time in the mountains, he, he lost his favorite Bible, and he was devastated at the loss of this Bible, so much so that it began to affect his faith. Three weeks later, a dog walked up to him after a church service with his Bible in his mouth. He took the Bible... He couldn't believe it. He took the Bible from the dog's mouth. He raised his eyes towards heaven, and he said, It's a miracle! Not really, said the dog. Your name was written on the inside cover. <laughs> Some of you are looking like you thought that was a true story. It's not. <laughs> so Jesus takes his closest three disciples, and they go up to the mountain to pray. And you know what that means when you go up to a mountain in the Bible? It means something big is going to happen. From other mountain experiences described in the Old Testament, we can figure on God showing up. There's Mount Ararat with Noah and the ark. There's Mount Moriah with Abraham being tested concerning the sacrifice of his son Isaac. There's Mount Sinai where Moses encountered God and received the Ten Commandments. And then there's Mount Zion with King David. And, and then we're back to Mount Zion with uh, uh, Elijah. But then at that time it had been changed to Mount Horeb where Elijah ex experiences God not in the wind, not in the earthquake, not in the fire, but in the still small voice. Whisper. The specific mountain is not important, but what happened there is of great importance. 
Jesus is transfigured before them. His face shines like the sun and his clothes become dazzling white. Mark includes the detail that his clothes were whiter than any launderer on earth could ever get them. So his clothes were so white that no amount of Clorox could get them that white. And we have this big word, transfiguration. It's from the Greek word metamorpho, which our English word metamorphosis comes from, which means to change or to transform. Going from one type of life to another type, another form, a completely different one. It's not a subtle change, but metamorphosis is a dramatic change such as the stunning transformation of a simple crawling little caterpillar into a beautiful butterfly that flies magnificently from flower to flower, or from the little uh, tiny-tailed tadpole that transforms into a uh, frog that can leap 20 times its body length. The transformation of Jesus' appearance that the disciples witnessed was not a mere cosmetic surface change. It was a stunning, substantive transformation in which the glorious divinity, his glorious divinity, was no longer veiled in his plain, humble, servant humanity. We also have Moses and Elijah appearing on the mountain. They have a conversation with Jesus. Luke 9.31 tells us what the conversation was about. He provides us with some inside information that Matthew doesn't. Luke reveals that the three were discussing the impending departure of Jesus in Jerusalem. In other words, they were talking about his suffering and his death and his resurrection. You know, both Moses and Elijah had unusual departures from this life. After Moses died, we are told it was God himself who buried him, and no human on earth knew where he was buried. And then Elijah, well, he didn't even die at all. He was bodily carried to heaven in a whirlwind. The disciples get a glimpse of how greater than Moses and Elijah Jesus is. Moses represents the law. He was the giver of the law. In Exodus 31, it tells us he took the law. He carried it from God's finger to the chosen people of God. So he represents the law. And you know, Moses was prevented from going into the promised land. So this was his first visit there. And then we have the rugged and robust miracle-performing Elijah. He was one of the premier prophets of Israel. He was continually calling the Israelites to a total commitment to the one true God and their responsibility to the covenant that God and they had sworn themselves to. Elijah represents the prophets. And we see here that Jesus is greater than the law and the prophets. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And then there's Peter, impulsive Peter. Peter says, Lord, it's good that we are here. Now, the grammar's a little ambiguous here. We're not sure if he's saying uh, it's good that the disciples are there or if it's good for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus that they're there so that they can build the, the three tents. But but Peter says, if you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. That's an interesting suggestion. Mark's gospel adds the detail that Peter did not know what to say, for he was scared. He was terrified. But maybe, just maybe, it was such a wonderful moment that Peter did not want it to end. He says, Lord, I don't see a Motel 6 around here, but... 
it would, not, it would be too good for me not to linger here a little bit. Let me build you, Moses and Elijah, three tents. And then we have the bright cloud, the brilliant cloud. It's what theologians like to call a theophany. A fancy term means that God showed up. He made an appearance. The three disciples would relate to the cloud due to their knowledge from the previous encounters with God that were taught to them in the scriptures. Like the luminous cloud leading the Hebrews in the Exodus, cloud by day, fire by night, and then like Mount Sinai when Moses went and received the Ten Commandments and he encountered God, and in the, in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle in Solomon's temple where we have the Shekinah glory, or if you're a country boy like me, Shekinah. So we have this bright cloud and this voice of God coming from the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The disciples had sort of halfway listened to Jesus as they'd been following him. They heard the parts about how to live a good Christian life, and, and, but they needed to listen to everything that Jesus said and he would teach so that they would be prepared for what was to come. Are you listening to Jesus? This declaration by God from the cloud revealed Christ's divine sonship. It confirmed everything Jesus had said about himself. And when this happened, the three disciples fell on their faces, they were, for they were terrified. But Jesus says to them, rise and have no fear. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom with no fear for them that believe. Jesus tells his disciples something strange as they're going down the mountain, too. After this event, he says something that might be a head-scratcher. He says he doesn't want Peter, James, and John to tell anybody what had happened till after his resurrection. Such knowledge could cause the people to rise up in mass and attempt to forcefully thrust Jesus onto the throne in effect bypassing God's perfect plan for our redemption. You see, the cross and the crucifixion, they would challenge Peter and James and John. They they would challenge their conventional understanding of the coming of the Messiah. Being first century Jews, they thought there was only going to be one coming of the Messiah. And the matter of Jesus' suffering and death did not figure in at all with their understanding of what should happen when the Messiah came. He wasn't supposed to suffer and die. But even with Jesus' continuing to teach them on the matter of his first coming, to serve and to suffer and to die for their sins and our sins, and then come again a second time in glory, they still couldn't quite grasp the plan. God's kingdom is not political. It is familial. It is made up of family. The king of the universe, the Lord of lords, the king of kings, is our older brother. At his resurrection, remember Jesus telling Mary Magdalene to go and tell his other disciples that he was going to see his father and their father? Imagine how hard it would be for these three disciples not to tell anybody else what had happened especially the other disciples. Hey, I got to go up with Jesus on a mountain, and guess what? 
or especially to those who were the detractors of Jesus, wouldn't it be tempting to have the last word in any argument? Oh, yeah? Well, let me tell you about the time we went up on the mountain. and After his resurrection, they would tell others, though. Peter would write about it, as we read in 2 Peter this morning, and also the Apostle John writes about it in his gospel and in his first letter. He alludes to it. And they would write and tell of it as a reassurance to themselves and to the early Christians and those who were seeking the truth, and down through the ages to us, that they were eyewitnesses to Christ's glory and his coming in his kingdom. So what does that mean for us today? You know, there were three, the three disciples were being presented with this preview of coming attractions. And then they were written down for us. So what does it mean for you and for me today? Just as the first disciples would find encouragement from the transfiguration experience with the shining face of their Lord during some dark days that they would, uh, when they would come to see that face that they followed and loved being beaten and battered and bruised and bloodied beyond recognition. But Jesus was showing them what lies beyond the cross. It would give them confidence to keep going. It was an experience that the Holy Spirit in later days could use to carry them from fear to faith. From the cloud, the Father tells the three disciples, as we said, listen to his Son. And the disciples would listen. They would not totally understand everything, and they would not respond to events perfectly all the time, just like you and me. But when the Holy Spirit would come upon them, they would recall what they had seen and what they'd been shown and what they'd been told, and they would share the good news with everybody they encountered. Are you listening to Jesus today? Are you listening to Jesus over and above your peers, over and above your family traditions or your political party or the sponsors of the programming that you tune into? Are you listening to Jesus over and above your national and ethnic prejudices? Are you listening to Jesus over and above the movies you watch, the, the, the materials you read, and the websites you visit? Are his words preeminent in you? The presence of Moses and Elijah represented the law and the prophets. And we know that Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets and in Matthew 22:35 through 40, Jesus declares that the entire law and prophets hang on these two things, loving God with all your being and loving your neighbor like yourself. All of it is fulfilled in love, and Jesus perfectly fulfills this law of love. Jesus did not die by losing his life. He died by laying down his life in love. His suffering and death was not plan B, it was plan A. So that he could pay for our sins, for your sins and my sins, and bring us back to our Abba Father and to share in his glory. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He writes, we were included in God's original plan of salvation by the bond of faith in the living truth. This is the life of the Spirit he invent, invited you to to through the message in which you get in on the glory of our master, Jesus Christ. His death was not just another martyrdom. His death was not just to make us forgiven sinners. His death was not to make us 
just to make us pardoned and acquitted criminals. His death was not just to make us patients who had undergone healing. But he laid down his life willfully to bring us, we prodigal sons and daughters, back to our Abba Father. And no matter what you're going through, no matter how difficult, no matter how devastating, no matter how debilitating, no matter how scary, no matter how overwhelming, or no matter how hurtful, the transfiguration reminds us that it is temporary. When this mortal coil, as Shakespeare's Hamlet puts it, or this veil of tears, as the old-timers used to say, when, when it's over, we have the assurance that the glorified Jesus Christ is coming for us and we will experience our own everlasting transfiguration and everything is going to be really cool. The transfiguration experience of Jesus is truly a preview of coming attractions for us. It reveals to us and reminds us that the stuff you're going through right now is not the climax of the story. When God created you, he created you for eternity. He created you for relationship with him. And no matter what twists and turns your life takes, in the end, we win. The transfiguration vividly demonstrates that this gospel of Jesus Christ is real. It is relevant. It is true. And it is triumphant.